Chapter 3 of Old Broadbrim Into the Heart of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Old Broadbrim Into the Heart of Australia by St. George Henry Rathborn. Chapter 3 The Clue and the Talisman. The death of Custer Kipp, the Nabob, startled the whole city. For some time, New York had been in the midst of a carnival of crime, but this murder capped the climax. No one thought of the other case that got into the newspapers at the same time. The death of Jason Morrow in his little den near the mouth of the alley did not take up half the space, and the reporters did not care to discuss it. But the life of the millionaire was published. His past was ventilated so far as the reporters knew it, and they made out that he was one of the pillars of the metropolis, and there were loud calls for swift and certain vengeance. Old Broadbrim was not to be found. The inspector probably knew what had become of him, for he put Hargraves and Irwin on the case, and intimated that for once the Quaker detective would not stand between the pair, nor wrest from them the laurels to be gained in the Fifth Avenue mystery. Custer Kipp did not go to the morgue, but Jason Morrow did. The surgeons went at him in the most approved style, and decided, after more cutting than was necessary, that the man had died from strangulation. The forenoon of the day after the discovery of the murder on the avenue, old Broadbrim went back to Clipper's house. The wiry little man received him with a good deal of excitement, and immediately took a package of papers from his bosom. "'I found them, the papers which I knew Jason had hid somewhere in the house,' he exclaimed. "'It took a long hunt, and I ransacked the whole place, but here they are.' Old Broadbrim took a seat at the table and began to open the jumbled papers. "'Where did Jason come from, Clippers?' he asked while he worked. "'I don't know. He would never tell me much about his past, but he had traveled some. He had been around the world and at one time lived in Australia.' Just then something fell out of the package, and Old Broadbrim picked it up. It was the counterpart of the photograph Custer Kipp had shown him in the library, the face of his deadly foe. How had it come into Jason Morrow's possession? Where did the occupant of the alley den get hold of it, and what did he know of the man it represented? Clipper stood over his friend, the detective, and folded his arms while old Broadbrim read the written papers found in the little house. It's strange, very strange, muttered the detective. These may give me a clue to the other mystery. Those documents, eh? The documents and the photograph. It's an old affair, the picture, I mean. Yes, taken years ago. But the man may wear the same features to some extent, and by this picture I may know him. Who do you think he is, Mr. Broadbrim? Old Broadbrim looked up into the face of Clippers. Perhaps the man who killed Jason Morrow, he said. Then you are going to take the trail and beat Hargraves and Irwin to the end of it? I am on another trail, quietly spoke the detective. I am not going to bother the boys unless my trail crosses theirs. Then I will play out my hand boldly. After reading over the papers left behind by Jason Morrow, old Broadbrim arose and thrust them into an inner pocket. His face was as serene as ever, and nothing told that he had found what might prove a clue. From Clipper's house, he went direct to the offices of the Cunard Line. It was the day for the sailing of one of that line's boats for Liverpool, and the detective was soon looking over the list of passengers. Suddenly, his eyes stopped at a name and rested there. It was a name he had just seen in the papers he had read in Clipper's house. 
too late, said the detective as he turned away. A few hours too late. The murderer is gone. Ere this, he is fairly at sea on the deck of the Campania, and I, I am in New York. Old Broadbrim quitted the office and got once more into the sunlight. Taking a cab, he hastened to the offices of the White Star Line and entered coolly but anxious. He inquired at the proper desk when the next steamer of the line sailed for Liverpool. The Oceanic will leave her dock this afternoon. The face of the detective seemed to flush with rising joy. On the instant he engaged a cabin and walked out. We will see how the chase ends, he said in undertones. It may prove a long one, but thanks to Jason Morrow's story, I may not be altogether on the wrong trail. An hour later he stood once more beneath the roof of the murdered millionaire. This time he was met by Foster Kipp, the dead man's son, a young man of twenty-five with an open countenance, but eager and determined. I heard of this terrible affair in Albany, whither I went on some business for father. It came sooner than he expected. He expected it, then? Yes. Once he confided to me that he had an enemy, and said he was blacklisted. I never pressed him for particulars, for he was reticent, but I firmly believe that the blow which fell last night was the one he dreaded. It was, said the detective. Your father was killed by a hand in whose shadow he must have been for at least six months. Yes, nearly that long ago I found him in a faint on the carpet of the library, for he had received a warning of some kind, and I failed to get the secret from him. It must be the old enemy, the one he made in Europe. He traveled through the continent, then. I believe he made a tour of the world. I recall some of his descriptions of places which are very far apart. But the most terrible thing connected with this is that he should be killed in his own home, deliberately strangled, while Nora was quietly reading in her boudoir upstairs. It makes it the more mysterious. The murderer entered by the front door and made his exit that way. He knew the mansion. He knew that your father was at home and unprotected. It must have been thus. Had I been at home, the blow would not have fallen. He was killed on the eve of his sixty-fourth birthday. Why didn't the monster permit him to round out the year? Perhaps that was in the scheme. Heavens! I never thought of that, cried Foster Kipp. It must have been a part of the diabolical game, to kill him before he became sixty-four. I remember last year he received a letter which threw him into a white rage, and tearing it up in this room he declared that he would pass this day safely and live many years yet. But it was not to be. The foe found him. For half an hour longer the detective talked with the son, and drew from him all he knew about his father's past. "'I nominate you his avenger,' said Foster, looking calmly into old Bradbim's face, while they occupied armchairs near the desk in the fatal library. "'I send you out on this trail, asking you to follow it wherever it leads, through thick and thin, never losing sight of it till you close in upon the murderer.' Drag him from his hiding place, stand him under the noose, and then come to me for your reward. It will not be small. Father left millions behind, and they are mine now, mine and Nora's, and she joins me in this hunt for the murderer. Old Broadbrim stood before the young man and looked into his white face, earnest with anxiety, and seemed with eagerness that seemed to be devouring him. I believe, after talking with Nora, that the enemies are foreign ones, continued Foster Kipp. Father has within the last five years received letters at intervals which came from some remote corners of the world. One of them, I saw by a fragment of the envelope, came from London, another from Paris and a third from Melbourne. 
This would seem to indicate the restless nature of the enemy. But the trail leads across the water, Mr. Brabrim. I am sure of this. It may be a long one, but you are equal to it. Old Brabrim stood at the door of the mansion and was looking into Foster's face when he heard a sound in another room, and Miss Nora bounded forward. What do you think, she cried, stopping before the detective. Is it to be a trail across the water? It looks that way, miss, was the answer. Then take this for luck. Take it with the prayers of Nora Doon. And she pressed into the detective's hand a little packet, quite flat and much smaller than his hand. Old Broadbrim looked at it, but did not open it. Placing it in his pocket, he shook hands with Foster Kipp and Nora and turned away. Many a month was to pass ere they looked upon his face again. Many a dark danger was to be met and surmounted. Many a wild scene passed through before he could look upon the sunlight of success, and the path he had selected to tread within the last few hours was a path of death. In his little office, the detective made hasty preparations for departure. He went in light marching order, but provided in many ways for the long journey. For London, he packed his little grip, and on the street below looked around upon familiar scenes perhaps for the last time. He hastened to the White Star offices and went on board the vessel in which he had taken passage. In the little stateroom he made ready for the voyage, and sat down to think a moment. All at once the little packet which Nora Dune had placed in his hands came to his mind, and he fished it from the depths of the inner pocket. With a half-smile at his lips, the detective opened it slowly, and then the smile broadened. He held in his hand a four-leaved clover, and on the paper upon which it rested were the best wishes of Nora Doone. The detective tore the paper into bits, but carefully preserved the little talisman. Ten minutes later, the steamer was moving from her dock, and the famous detective went up on deck. He was on the longest and most exciting trail of his life. The chase across the ocean had begun, and old Broadbrim, as he looked out over the water, wondered what the end would be. End of chapter 3